1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll begin reading verse 13. God's word declares, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaeus, Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. With the church that is in their, ho- in their house, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Today we conclude, uh, at least in my life, a power and ministry, a powerful study in the First Corinthians. I think any study of God's Word has to end with that conclusion. Um, if it's done well, and if it's done right, and we come to it with the right heart that says what God says is true, and I will believe it and follow it, it's going to have a powerful effect upon us. But in terms of the ministry of our church, how we do it, and why, um, 1 Corinthians has spoken loudly and addressed multiple areas within church function that has largely been ignored in too many of our church traditions here in the modern era. That we have taken our cues from the world, from our society, instead of from God. And we are going to try and strive as a body of saints to reverse that trend. And I'm sure that um, it's going to be difficult to sustain that. Um, change is part of life. And this kind of change, when we conform ourselves to God's Word, um, is always going to be difficult. It's going to have adversity from within us, our own rebellious hearts. And it doesn't help when we have adversity from around us, even within the body of Christ. It says, oh, no, you don't have to obey that. And give us excuses why. But if we are called by His name, and we describe Him as our Lord and Master, that's what it means when we call Him our Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the one that has ultimate authority over us, and there is no aspect of our life that is ours unilaterally to control. For we who call Christ Lord have already surrendered our will to Him. That is what it means to become a servant of Jesus Christ. And so when we read His Word, we submit to it readily, and to fail to do so brings into question whose you are. And that is really the discussion that Paul wants to conclude them with the Corinthians. Whose are you? And he does that through two simple Aramaic words, which is really strange in a book that's written in Greek. But he's going to use two Aramaic words that are going to be transliterated into Greek. He writes them in the Greek alphabet, but they are Aramaic words. 
that Paul uses in his conclusions and is the only part of this book that Paul wrote by his own hand. And this he wants to let us know in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 16. After sending the greetings from the brethren of Asia, specifically of Aquila and Priscilla, that church that met in their home, and all the other brethren that were with him, uh, he instructs them to greet one another also, and he tells them even how, and we're going to talk a little bit about a, the holy kiss. Having done so, he then takes up the pen himself and authors with his own hand just these last three or four verses. And we're going to look at all of this together. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We again thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We marvel at that privilege that we have to have it here before us in our own language, preserved in a trustworthy fashion. Lord, not necessarily um, to man's credit, but to the Spirit's working. You have promised to preserve your word, describing as eternal. And Lord, we do pray that we might view it as such with all the authority of your breath behind it. Lord, that as we do so, your spirit might not only um, guide us into its truth, but empower us to live it in our lives. We need your help in all of this. We pray you might guard this time from error from the opinion of this man or any others, from the philosophy of this world. There might be a purity of your truth disclosed during this hour. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have taken some time in chapter 16 and we keep going back to the verses that we focused on last week. Uh, Paul's concluding remarks to a church that has lots of problems. A church that's in trouble from our perspective when we look at the divisions that are there, the immorality that is there, churches that most, a church that most of us would try to avoid. That seems to be the mode these days is that if things aren't going quite right in the church, um, that rather than confront issues, we tend to just leave and find another church. We don't want to cause any waves. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that um, back uh, years ago when I was traveling extensively in churches speaking um, and live and then spending the night in homes of uh, church members I it's unfathomable how many were dissatisfied with their churches and were planning on just quietly leaving and going to find another church to avoid the problems but really what they were doing is trying to avoid confronting the problems. And one thing we find in Corinthians, and maybe that hence the instruction that we watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong, and do it all in love, is the fact that in every church that is filled with former sinners called saints, there are going to be problems while they're still in the flesh. And it does require us to be watchful, to stand fast in the faith, to be brave and be strong, to confront those issues rather than just run away. 
And we don't like confrontation in our society anymore. And it has penetrated the church to the point that many churches are filled with leadership that are running roughshod over God's word and hence over God's people. And our response is to simply withdraw. We don't want the fight anymore. But Corinthians gives us a powerful manual on how to address problems in the church. It needs to be lifted up, not only by its leadership, but by the church at large. These instructions are not just for pastors and deacons. It was for all the church of Corinth. And we find that they have a relationship with other churches and hence also responsibility before them. That even as they were to submit to the works and labors of others who had good report by Paul and others who were truly preaching the gospel, they were to submit to them as well as to their own leadership, to Paul himself. Um, he then goes through and gives these greetings that there is a, a corporate accountability that we have with an expectation that one church does not have the liberty to simply go off and design its own belief system. That we cannot do that. And as soon as we begin to go in that direction, away from uh, God's Word, and we begin to enhance it ourselves, we run into lots of problems. Huge problems. That we begin to isolate ourselves from biblical churches, from their commands, we will always run askew of God's truth. And we have seen that time and again throughout our society in the history of the church. And so this body of one church in Corinth had a relationship that is really just mentioned lightheartedly here as greetings from these other churches. But in the context of all of Corinthians, we've already looked at the necessity of looking uh, what is being taught? What is being conducted by those who are genuinely following God's Word? And why aren't you modeling that in your church? And so I can travel the world, and I've said this before, and I should be able to go to any culture and be comfortable in any church that is following God's Word because there should be the patterns held there. That while there might be a different language, a different uh, hymnody, um, there should still be a similarity in belief system and in living. And Corinthians gives us that guide. So we are not isolated, and God does not anticipate that. He anticipates that the churches be able to greet one another. And we have had some privileged opportunities to engage with others around the world and perhaps like no other time in history, we can engage churches around the globe instantaneously. But what it has not produced, unfortunately, is a righteous church that wants to follow God's word. We have allowed the influence of Pastor Reddy to come and examine us. And to say, this isn't a cultural issue. And the two or three issues that he raised with us over our ministry um, were valid. 
We have responsibility to the saints. Not just to give no offense, but to be biblical. Just as they have responsibility to us. And we have too much emphasized enculturation of the church rather than understanding the church itself as its own culture, unique. Called out of all cultures. And so the churches of Asia, the church in the house of Aquila and Priscilla, and we could spend uh, time talking about how the church met back then in homes. And that, uh, we might think, well, that's only a dozen people, but that wasn't true. They had upper, house, upper rooms that could hold uh, this number easily that are meeting here today. The brethren had a relationship one with another is strongly evident that they recognize accountability to each other, that there is more to the church of Jesus Christ than just these four walls. That we hold one another accountable as well as encouraging, challenging, and yes, as we already saw at the beginning of this chapter, ministering to one another in our needs. This has all been built out of what we've already studied, and I want to really press very quickly on into this chapter to Paul's own hand. And it's going to relate, of course, to what has already passed. But we come to verse 21, and Paul takes up the pen, and that might disturb some of you. I thought Paul wrote this whole thing. Um, Paul used what is called an amanuensis. Um, that's just a fancy Greek word for a secretary. Um, he would have used... Uh, such an individual, a scribe, to come in and write as he dictated the letter to the Corinthians. Um, it was not something he would have participated in. By this point in his ministry, his eyesight was likely uh, very poor already. Um, he had already been stoned. Um, we find him uh, already uh, dealing with some of the physical limitations that the ministry's toll has on, taken on him. And we now find him in this condition, and he is using, apparently, a secretary in this situation, writing down this letter dic- that he's dictating to him. We then find him taking up the pen at the end to be emphatic. But now I want to take this effort to write something by my own hand. And some have contended from other passages that apparently when Paul picks up the pen, um, it's very evident to the reader. (laughs) His penmanship isn't comparable to that of the amanuensis. His penmanship is apparently very obviously different. When he picks it up, if if it was his eyesight that was so bad, he would have written large enough for himself to read. Um, Whatever it was, whether he signed like a doctor, I don't know. But it was evident, obvious, that he had picked up his own, picked up the pen with his own hand. And now he has this concluding series of statements. He begins with a warning. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. The word accursed there is a translation of the Aramaic word anathema. And it's a word that we're familiar with. It is in our dictionary. It is something that we 
use in our language occasionally this Aramaic word anathema, and it is this cursing that is to be brought upon that the individual. Um, the word anathema originally had both positive and negative aspects. You could set something aside uh, to a holy use, like in Leviticus, that these things were set aside for uh, the use of the priests alone, and therefore it was anathema. That is, we couldn't touch it. Only the priests could touch that instrument or that or participate in this event, uh, this uh, work. And so it was anathema to all of us. We couldn't touch it or we would be judged. But overwhelmingly, by Paul's time, the word anathema had taken on almost singularly the negative connotation, and that is the idea of judgment that comes upon uh, those that are in a, in, a, in a situation that they are abusing the knowledge and uh, work of Jesus Christ. Just as those who would have gone in and tried to do the work of the priests in the holy place or the holy of holies uh, who were not qualified would have been struck dead by God directly. Um, that is that word anathema. They were cursed. And we have some in instances of that where even qualified men, uh, the sons of Eli, for instance, who did it in an unqualified manner, as well as sons of Aaron, for that matter, uh, when it burned strange incense, that they were struck dead by God. They were anathema. They were cursed because they laid hold of something in an unqualified manner and did it in opposition to God out of love for themselves and not love for God. It is comparable to the individual who thought that God needed some help because the Ark of the Covenant might fall off the cart and reaches out to steady it. And so, first of all, we are carrying the Ark of the Covenant not according to the prescription of God. And now we're going to reach out and touch the anathema object, the one that we are not allowed to. It's set aside. It's covered. Your eyes can't even see it, for the covering is over it. It is the throne of God, and you reach out, and you dare to think that God needs your assistance, and you touch the forbidden object, and he dies, and what should be a day of celebration becomes a day of mourning and of death. This is the word that we are using here. And Paul's using it not with regard necessarily to the world. He's using it here to speak to those within the hearing of this letter in the church. And every instance of that word back in those examples that I've given you was people of God who are in the priest's family, who are right there of the Levi and reaching out and thinking they were doing God's work. But they were cursed because they thought to do God's work their way. And this, my brethren, is what it means not to love the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we read that statement, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, well, that means that uh, um, they hate Him and that they uh, uh, and that there's some emotive aspects there, um, that there's affections, that they we're not affectionate towards Christ, we don't like to hear His name or that we are going to curse Him uh, and those kinds of things. But that's really not the context here. The idea here 
is that if you're going to go about the business of your Christianity, doing it your way instead of God's way, that is not the love for Jesus Christ. That is love for yourself. This is correlated so well with so many other passages where the love of God is described. What does it mean to love God? And of course, we've already done a study of 1 John, have we not? God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And therefore, if we claim to love God, what are we going to do? We're going to obey His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous to us. I'm not going to sit there and complain and bellyache about it. I'm not going to drag my feet over Him. I'm going to joyfully jump up and say, yes, I love God. I'm going to obey His commandments. He says to do this, I'm going to do it. No questions asked. No delays. No complaint. Woohoo! I get to obey God. Oh, that that would be our response every time we read a God's Word, something that we're not doing. Oh, that we would be like Israel. The times of Josiah when they found the law and they read it and they go, oh my goodness, we haven't been doing that. Let's get on it right now. No delay. Let's obey. That, my brethren, is what it means to love Jesus Christ as your Lord. Not about whether you have uh, wall hangings in your bedroom with Jesus' picture on them and not about whether you have Bible verses on your Facebook site, um, but about obedience in your life. Subjecting yourself to Jesus Christ the way He wants it done, not the way you think it ought to be done and He ought to just be so thrilled to have you. Serving Him your way, no. So Paul says, listen, if you want to do it your way, you'll be accursed. You'll be anathema. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, in the study Sunday night um, where Pastor Leachman is trying to make sure we know which Jesus Christ we're talking about here by study of God's Word, and it does matter, there are multiple Jesus Christs around so-called, so-named. But there is a distinguishment, and it's clear that men have created many little Jesus Christs that are not the Jesus Christ historically, theologically, and personally that Paul is speaking to here. So if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, they want to go their own way, they want to do church their way, they want to be religious by their design instead of God's design. They're going to do it by their culture instead of God's culture. Paul's statement here is a very powerful one. Let them be anathema. If you think Paul uses this word lightly, um, you need to read more of Paul's writings. He uses this idea in Galatians. Let's go there very quickly. Um, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Oh, let's back up. Verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You get that? They are doing the anathema thing. They are taking something that God said, you worship me this way, this is who and this is how, and they want to pervert it and make it what makes them feel comfortable? These were the Judaizers who said, we, we, we're so comfortable with our Judaism, we just want Christianity to be more Jewish. 
We want you to be circumcised, all you Gentiles. We want you to keep the food laws. We want you to be more Jewish. Just be a little more Jewish, because we're comfortable with it. You should be comfortable with it. And they want to pervert the gospel instead of doing it God's way. Here it goes. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be, and there it is again, anathema. You preach God's word in its purity, unperverted by men, or face the consequences, which is anathema, being accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. We have a choice to fit this role of if we love, do we love Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior or not? We have a choice. We can either do it His way as the only way or be accursed doing it our way. We either are the bondservants of Jesus Christ seeking to please Him or we are pleasing men, ourselves among those men. You can't have it both ways. Paul says if you have a claim, if you stake a claim that you are a lover of Jesus Christ, well, let's stop writing it in poetry and let's start living it in your life. Or be accursed, be anathema. Because that is genuinely what it means when we lay hold of the holy instruments of worship our way instead of God's. Paul's incursion here is let us be anathema. And he follows that right on the heels of that with another Aramaic word transliterated, that is letter for letter into Greek, which sounds very similar. So it's let him be anathema. And then he follows that with a single word, maranatha. Anathema maranatha. And Maranatha is a, combina- is a compound word. And so the Mara, Marana, Marana is the idea of Lord, a master. And it's translated for us, O Lord, come. And there's a lot of debate on whether it's past tense, present tense, future tense. Um, I don't really care which tense it is. Okay, It's the whole idea of the coming of the Lord. The Lord has come. The Lord come. Or the Lord will come. I don't think that's that relevant because Christ has come, is here, and will come. All are true. But we come to this passage and following right after the idea that if you don't love the Lord and do it His way, you are accursed, follow that immediately with the Lord's coming. And we might scratch our says, Oh Lord, come. Um, what does that mean? Um, And we often associate the Lord's coming with something as a positive event. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. And and if it's repetitious to you, um, well, you probably need it. Um, Repetition is how we learn things really well. Okay, Um, The Lord's coming, we often associate with a very positive thing. We're going to go to heaven. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to be translated. It's going to be wonderful. Marriage, supper, the lamb. Uh, I just can't wait. 
Um, and remember, uh, we studied a while back, uh, Lord, count me worthy of it. Oh, that should be our attitude. That I wake up, Lord, count me worthy of the resurrection. Um, because it's a fearful thing that He comes and I'm not worthy. Not that I earned the right to the resurrection, but rather that the evidence of the love of Christ needs to be in me by me be obedient to God's Word, that I keep His commandments, His commandments are not grievous, that I demonstrate a, a battle against sin in my life, that I hate it because it's against my Lord. And so what Paul here has done is he has very, very, very distinctly by two Aramaic words connected Things that we don't always connect with the Lord's coming. And that is the idea of judgment. The Christ's coming is coming in judgment. We have this for us, uh, described for us here. And let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Again, a passage you've heard me speak, rehearse many, many times, but, uh, I still want to go there again. Matthew chapter 7, um, Christ comes into his kingdom. What's it going to look like? What's it going to sound like? What's going to be transpiring there? This is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. They're saying the right words. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the right, the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you see the difference? The difference is you click the claim, Lord, Lord, but you're not obeying the Lord. You can't call Him Lord and then do what you want. If you do what you want, you are your Lord. So if He is really Lord, Lord, then we ought to be doing what He wants to do. What does He want us to do? What does He want me to do? What does He require of us? Many, verse 22, will say to me in that day, what day? That Lord come day. Oh, Lord, come. This is not Paul saying, Lord, please come. It's saying when the Lord comes, there's judgment. That when the coming of the Lord, will you be numbered among those who are blessed or those that are anathema? At the Maranatha, will you be anathema? That's the question that Paul writes in his own hand to these Corinthians. Make sure that at the Maranatha, when the Lord comes, that you are not anathema, cursed. In that day, says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look what we've done. We prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, and essentially, if you put those words together, what he just says, it's anathema. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How is it lawless? Because they were doing what they thought the end results were, what God wanted, but they're doing it their way. Instead of being completely and 100% obedient to God, they wanted to do it their way. I'm more comfortable with this. I enjoy this more like this. I don't like doing it the Corinthian way. I mean, I've been doing this ministry for 20-some years. I've been doing communion the same way every year, every time we've done communion for over a quarter of a century. You can obey God when you discover that maybe you need to adjust yourself. Yeah, I need to obey God. 
Can I change after 25 years? Yes. If he really, really, really is Lord, Lord, I will change. And I should be ashamed that it took me 25 years to figure it out that I was doing it wrong. We have an association. Christ's coming is a positive event. But the Bible consistently paints it. We're still in Matthew. Let's turn over to Matthew 24. Consistently paints it, the Bible, as a time of judgment and a fearful time. Verse 25, I think, chapter 25, I think I told you chapter 24, 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations we gather before Him, He will separate them from one, one from another as shepherd divides His sheep from the goats and He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on His left. And He starts to distinguish between them. The time of Christ's coming is a time, yes, of blessing for some, but of cursing for many. If you want to jump down to verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil as angels. And he goes on to describe that they didn't do his work, his way. So when Paul comes to these two words and he connects them together for us um, and we want to disassociate them and put a you know, definite period there, well, there's, there's the, the anathema, but then for us there's maranatha. Oh no, the anathema and the maranatha go hand in hand because when Christ comes, there is judgment. And the accursed are truly cursed. The decision is made. Who in this flock is a goat and who is a shepherd? I'm sorry, who's a sheep? The shepherd decides this. They have, they have grazed together. But now it's harvest time. God says it's time to distinguish the sheep from the goats. What is it that distinguishes us? Obedience. Paul's worst use of the word, love the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we need to insert in that statement, not the affections of your guts, but rather the determination of your will. Am I obedient to Him? Is He truly my Lord, my Master? What He says I will do without discussion, without complaint, without delay. So this is not a request, I don't think, of, O oh Lord, come, but referencing the Lord's coming as that time of discernment, of distinguishment between those who truly love the Lord and evidence that by, obe- by obedience to Him and those who claim to love the Lord but are anathema because they never obeyed. 
And Paul, looking at the Corinthian church, says, these instructions I've given you that, that are far-ranging for your church and touch many, many, many areas from, from your uh, divisions, from your practices as a church to your personal practices um, all the way into your sexuality. I'm going to cover all the bases here. And the question is, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ or not? Don't claim to love Him and disregard all that the Bible says in every area of your life. There isn't anything untouched by this. We've gone through our family. We've gone through uh, singleness. We've talked about our money. We've talked about our, our spiritual giftedness. We've talked about all these huge areas of our life, our work. Do you love the Lord? And hence, looking at these scriptures, say, I'm going to conform myself to them. I'm going to obey. Or are you accursed? There is no middle ground. And I know there's plenty of goats in lots of churches that think, well, I'm in the same pasture as those others. I'm eating the same food as those others. I, I have over me the same shepherd as those others. But when Maranatha happens, they will be genuinely surprised, I believe, to find out they aren't one of the sheep. And that's why those phrases of Paul uses, Oh, that I might be counted worthy of the resurrection. Oh, that I might be counted by God for that. Stand forward in our thinking to realize when the, the coming of the Lord is something that even for the believing community is a fearful thing. Yes, it is our joy, our hope, our expectation. But between now and that day, I have to scratch my head and keep reminding myself, am I a lover of God or am I anathema? Is it real? Or am I just a goat in the same pasture? with the real sheep. So Paul lays this out before us with a power, two powerful words and a great challenge. Do you love the Lord? The evidence of that is not a proclamation but a life of obedience. What is Paul's desire for them? Well, he doesn't want them to be counted among the accursed. In verse 23 and 24, having strongly, in probably some of the most powerful words he could use, warned them. He now moves in these last two verses to what he would prefer for them. I prefer the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I prefer that you receive from his good hand salvation. That then, by receiving Christ as Savior and Lord, you can truly, honestly, 
Worship Him by obedience, not in your own strength, but in the power of the Spirit which will dwell in you once you receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that you would have His grace in you. Then it wouldn't be such an issue because once you've received that kind of grace, obedience is the natural response. I can't wait to obey. Christ has done so much for me. I can do this little bit for Him. I can't wait. You don't have to drag me kicking and screaming to it. I'm not going to dig in my heels. I'm not going to oppose it. I'm not going to grumble about it. I can't wait. Once I have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is with me, then obedience is the natural response of faith. And so he calls it the grace that God gives us what we do not deserve that, he, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be with us. So that when the Lord comes, we are not among the accursed. We are among the sheep, the blessed. Those who go into His presence for eternity. The second aspect that, God, that Paul desires for them, he says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen, or so be it. That his warning to them is not a warning of anger or of disappointment. His warning is genuine, and it comes out of what real love requires of us. It is dishonest to say we love someone and let them go out and destroy their lives without warning. Or to aid them, comfort them, abed them in their destruction of their lives. We can't claim to love them and allow them to do that without warning. Without regular chastisement saying, this is going to mean the destruction of your life. Misery. Paul says, I love you. And this warning comes not from an antagonistic view, although you may look at it in that fashion, but rather it comes from what genuine love requires. I am willing to sacrifice of myself for your benefit. That requires me to give you this stern warning. It's moved him under the working of the Holy Spirit to give him the entire book to deal with these issues in the church and to confront them and not to run away or to stick our head in the sand and, and pretend that if I can't if I don't look at them they don't exist. Rather confront them, get them out in the open, deal with them, apply God's principles and truths to them, resolve them and submit one another to that truth and to one another. Paul says that's the solution and I love you enough to give it to you. This is what I want. I want to maintain this relationship with you. That this loving act of my service may be with you in Christ Jesus. Not to His glory. Remember, that was a big problem in Corinth. Who gets the credit? Is it Peter, Paul, Apollos, Jesus? Oh no, it's all for Jesus Christ. And just as Paul has called them 
to love as the greatest endeavor of man, he exemplifies it to them. Here's what it looks like. And yes, sometimes it comes off kind of harsh. Doesn't mean it's less loving. It might even be the most loving thing. It's for Paul to pick up that pen himself and walk over to that parchment and start scratching it out with whatever impediments he was carrying upon his body at that time and scratch out two Aramaic words. Anathema, Maranatha. You don't want it. I want something more for you. I want God's grace in your life. And in my love for you, that is what I choose to write. doesn't make it more powerful or more important than the rest of the book. It is simply Paul's personal act to summarize all that he's put here. Listen, none of this will benefit you. None of this will be of value to you if you don't love the Lord. It is primary. And it goes, takes us back to that theme we've been focusing on and pounding on you throughout 1 Corinthians. Knowledge puffs up, but class, love edifies. It is what... Paul is pounded into the Corinthians and pounded into them. It doesn't matter how much you know. It is of no value to anyone. He'll puff you up and deflate you once you confront it with the Maranatha. What do you have to show when Maranatha comes? That's redundant. At Maranatha, when Christ the Lord comes... What do you have? If all you have is this great knowledge, I know the Bible, I know these Greek words, whoop-de-doo. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? The way the Bible describes that kind of love. Are you obeying Him? Paul, in his love for them, will not compromise the truth of Jesus Christ, but rather he wants to lead them into that truth. And he does so in some very positive statements throughout Corinthians. But now at the very end, he has to give this brutally honest warning. Listen, if this is too hard for you to obey, you are anathema at the Maranatha. Do I like it? No. What I want for you is the grace of God. But you must be served well with the truth. Or I'm not a loving minister. And you see, in our society, we have warped and twisted love so that it's permissiveness. And we sit back and watch people and enter into misery and destruction and, and we think that that's love and, and it's not. And Paul is not about to walk down that lane knowing that he has to give an accounting for his ministry, lest he be anathema at Maranatha. And so he says, I'm going to give you my love. And that requires me to help you address these issues in your life. Bring them into conformity with God's truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the question that he throws out there today that we are confronted with this morning 
is do you love the Lord? Not do you say do you love Him. Do you love Him? And as the Bible describes, when we love the Lord, we obey Him. Gladly. Speedily. With all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, I wake up each day anticipating obeying God's Word. Do you love the Lord like that? We struggle just to get up and read some of God's Word every day, let alone obey the stuff. Yes, Maranatha is an exciting time for a few. But Maranatha for most people is judgment. It's anathema. It's the coming of Christ to judge, to curse. And so I don't see this as a call by Paul for the Lord to come to cut off the accursed, but rather the reality that when the Lord does come, there will be many within even the church who don't love the Lord enough to do it His way, who are doing it their way by the inventions of men. And they will be anathema at the Maranatha. Paul doesn't want that for the Corinthians, nor do I for this church or anyone in it. So loving ministry requires us to give the strong words. Not now and again, but regularly that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ might be with us. This is not just a closing benediction. Paul means this. Oh, that you would get what only God can give. And when that's in your life, you can love the Lord with obedience, watching, standing fast in your faith, being brave, strong, and doing all of it with love. Love for God and love for one another. Let's pray.